so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. Once again, I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders today, here on the America Out Loud Network. Well, I've got some good news for you. I know, it's you, really? You're going to tell us all of our problems are solved? No, not not that good news. But uh, actually, I do have some good news I'll share with you here in a few minutes. Um, namely, it's some good news regarding COVID-19. If you get most of your facts about COVID, you may, you know, be in a bit of a state of panic or a little bit of fear. But uh, there is uh, there there are actually 10 facts that Dr. Thomas Seiler has that bring some much needed perspective to the topic. All of those things are positive. Actually, you know what? Let's let's cut right to the chase. Let's talk about this. Let's start with dessert, shall we? My kids know the value of saving, you know, the good stuff for last, but let's jump in and eat our dessert first here. We have had 18 months now to slow the spread, says Dr. Thomas Seiler, and he says, now it's time to take stock of the pandemic. Dr. Seiler says, we've learned many good things that the media and our pandemic managers rarely report, and most fundamentally, we don't need to be afraid of COVID-19 anymore. Now, I've got to pause here for just a second. This is just a quick aside. Dr. Seiler is not saying it's all a hoax. This is all made up. The virus doesn't even exist. He's just pointing out that there are some facts which can provide perspective to the situation, which for some reason, strangely enough, people in authority and their sycophants in the media do not like to talk about. They'd rather show us the scary graphics and tell us about the cases and the variants and all the things that try to keep us complying, you know, for fear. Most fundamentally, he says, we do not need to be afraid. The media and government health authorities still are pushing hysteria and fear. But Dr. Seiler says that should not prevail. In fact, he says, let's look at the good news that can calm our fears about COVID-19. There'll be time at a later date to look at the bad and the ugly of the resolving pandemic. First of all, he points out globally, the survival rate for COVID-19 is 99.8%. Under the age of 70, the survival rate for COVID-19, 99.97%. Now, this is on par with many influenza seasons. And he says Americans younger than 70 do not have to fear COVID-19 any more than influenza. And we know how to protect the elderly. So that's good news. Kind of makes you wonder why we don't hear more about it. Secondly, he says herd immunity for the alpha strain is here. 67% of the American population have had at least one COVID-19 vaccination. The number of cases, the official number of cases, is about 10% of the population. But several antibody studies show that the percentage of those with natural immunity is four to six times higher 
Dr. Marty Macquarie, a Johns Hopkins professor, estimates 80 to 85 percent of the population is immune because of natural immunity and vaccination. Those who deny this must explain how cases and deaths started to decline in January, way before there was a significant vaccine effort. Now, Dr. Seiler says COVID-19 will not go away. Instead, we are transitioning now from a pandemic to endemic status. And indeed, some eminent virologists say vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic is making herd immunity more difficult to obtain through the creation of variants. The average age of death, this is point number three, is 78. Did you know the average life expectancy in America is also 78? Now, Dr. Seiler says, now this is not to say, don't worry, only old people are dying of COVID-19. However, this fact should direct and inform our policies to protect the elderly, especially. Children and those under age 70 are at much lower risk. Number four, Early outpatient treatment should be adopted immediately for COVID-19. And this is definitely something we are not hearing much about, again, through the primary mainstream sources. For instance, hydroxychloroquine works. Ivermectin works. It's been estimated 85% of COVID-19 deaths could have been prevented were these medicines used early. America's America's frontline doctors have an excellent compilation of research. The cost of these treatments runs about a dollar a day. And a new IV treatment, RegenCov, has been approved for for early use in COVID-19. Dr. Seiler says, don't wait to see if you'll get sick. Treat early. Point number five is that children are safe from COVID-19. And they don't spread the virus either. A study in the U.K. showed that the survival rate in children is 99.995%. So in the U.S., for instance, 335 children have died since the start of the pandemic. And a study done by Johns Hopkins and Fair Health showed that all of the children that died from April 2020 to August 2020 had immune problems or were chronically ill. In that period, and this is worth noting, not one healthy child died. Children have more of a chance of dying in a car wreck, of an unintentional drug overdose, or even from influenza than dying from COVID-19. Vaccination for healthy children is not needed. Number six, Sweden did not have a lockdown or mask mandate, and it did better with cases and deaths than many countries. Lockdown did not work and had serious cultural and economic side effects, and there's now ample literature to show that masks, as we are using them, do not work. Number seven, persons who've had COVID-19 infection have a robust and long-lasting immunity. And this immunity is also likely to protect against variants. Dr. Seiler says evidence continues to accumulate that the new mRNA vaccines are neither as effective nor safe as advertised. He says, I would advise not getting the vaccine on top of your natural immunity if you had the COVID-19 infection. Number eight, he says there is very little, if any, spread of COVID-19 from asymptomatic persons. This lie was spread early to maximize fear of this new virus. COVID-19 is like other respiratory viral infections. You catch it from being around someone who has symptoms. Like other viral symptoms, if you are sick, stay home, quarantine yourself, and treat yourself. But he says we don't need to quarantine the asymptomatic healthy. 
Number nine in the list of good news about COVID-19, the death rate nationally for COVID-19 has been going down since January. Now, Dr. Seiler points out how breathless news reporters talk about cases, hospital occupation, and contagiousness, but they never mention the death decline. There's been a small uptick in deaths in some areas over the past week, but not anywhere close to last winter. Although he does say there will be some variations in the death rate as we transition to endemic status. And finally, point number 10, the Delta variant is acting like a typical historical virus variant. Typically, variants happen all the time and are more contagious but less deadly. Initial reports show that this is likely true with Delta. A UK report states the Delta variant is likely 20 times less deadly than the Alpha strain, but that more data needs to be collected. The media constantly mentions Delta's more contagious, which is also true. Other Greek variants are also likely to behave in the same fashion. But here's the bottom line. Again, according to Dr. Thomas Seiler, we don't need to be afraid of COVID-19 anymore. Let's begin to end the hysteria and fear. He says the worst is over. We are transitioning to endemic status, which means a low level of cases and deaths. Now, we'll have many fewer deaths if we start to treat the infection early, now with available outpatient treatments. And he says we should resist further attempts at lockdowns and mask mandates as neither of those worked. We know exactly whom to protect. That would be the elderly, those with chronic health problems. That's where we should concentrate our energies. And thankfully, children have very little risk and do not need masks at school or vaccinations. Variants will come, but will not send us back into a situation like last year. Can our pandemic managers take some of this useful information and transform it into helpful public health policies from this point forward? Or is there another agenda behind the unending fear, hysteria, and the constant push for 100% vaccination? That remains to be seen. But he says, let's, uh, for now, let's celebrate the good news. I don't want to plant, you know, conspiracy theories in your head. It's not that they don't exist. It's just that there's enough stuff going on out in the open. Probably don't need to beat the bushes for a conspiracy theory at this point. Isn't it curious, though, that as as the variant continues to have these breakthrough infections, in other words, vaccinated people continue to be infected right along with the unvaccinated, kind of makes you wonder if maybe, just maybe, that uh, variant is being driven by perhaps the vaccines themselves. Saw an interesting interview taking place between uh, Lara uh, Ingram and immunology professor uh, Byram Bridal. And in this interview, he brings up how it's the vaccines driving the variants. Now, this is his opinion, okay? So don't don't take this as, you know, this is gospel. A doctor said it, therefore it must be true. But listen to what this doctor has to say, and maybe it will make sense for you. Here's the clip. From one never-ending war to another, as the White House touts the rush to get, of course, the FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine, Pfizer is already planning on the next vaccine. To keep up with the boosters. And uh, what we do it is every time, to keep up with the variants, every time that a variant appears in the world, our scientists are getting their hands around it. And they are researching to see if this variant can escape the protection of our vaccine. We haven't identified any yet. But we believe that it is likely that one day one of them will emerge. 
Is that correct? Joining us now is Dr. Byron Bridal, Professor of Viral Immunology at the University of Guelph. Dr. Bridal, first of all, is that accurate what the CEO of Pfizer just said? Uh, there's a couple things that I would argue are not accurate. Uh, first of all, the, uh, there is evidence, especially coming from places like Israel, that the Delta variant has already started to circumvent the immunity conferred by the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I do agree that there are going to be variants uh, that will emerge. Again, the, the Delta variant is evidence of one that has started to evade the immunity, but I do believe there is the possibility of future variants that will more efficiently evade the immunity conferred by the Pfizer vaccine. And this is in large part due to the nature of the vaccine and the way we're rolling out these vaccines. So what I mean by that is that the immunity conferred by these vaccines is too narrow. It's focused on one single component of the virus, which is the spike protein. That means the virus only has to change one component to evade the immunity. Um, also, a, a critical problem that we've now learned with these vaccines, and this, that's been admitted in the United States uh, and, and other countries, is that the duration of immunity, that's the length of time somebody's protected after being vaccinated, seems to be remarkably only four and a half to six months, which, which is incredibly short. Uh, so with the, the nature of the vaccines and the way they're being rolled out slowly over time and the fact that they are not conferring long enough immunity for everybody to achieve herd immunity, the, these are, this is the recipe for the vaccines themselves to be driving the emergence of highly evasive, highly immuno-evasive new variants. Well, today, um, I think it was today, yeah, today Dr. Fauci did address the issue of variants. Watch. If we keep lingering without getting those people vaccinated that should be vaccinated, this thing could linger on, leading to the development of another variant which could complicate things. So it's within our power to get this under control. Again, doctor, that was last night. Is, is the fact that some people are unvaccinated driving the variants or is there a different scenario at play yeah no as i mentioned it, i believe that it is the uh, the, the vaccines themselves that are driving the variants if anything not those who are unvaccinated those who are unvaccinated and get uh, infected they're either going to clear the virus or they're going to succumb to the virus that's really the option that happens when you're dealing with a highly pathogenic virus so uh, in the latter version uh, physicians would have to intervene but otherwise if somebody has cleared the virus they're naturally protected they have robust immunity broad-based immunity but that's not what dr fauci immunity. said sir that is not what dr fauci continues to say Instead, he said that if you've been infected and you get vaccinated, you have extra protection, enormous increase in your immunity to anything that basically comes your way. Is that accurate? Uh, no, what we have, what you have in that case is you have a dramatically amplified antibody response against the spike protein only. And we have to remember, when it comes to viruses, it's not about the magnitude of the antibody response. A, a healthy, robust, natural immune response against viruses actually typically has relatively low magnitude antibody responses. But what's more important against viruses is that we have the proper quality of antibodies. And there's mm. some evidence. In fact, there's a paper, a preprint article that's just appeared that suggests that with these uh, some of the Delta variants that are coming out, some of them are, might actually be prone to what we call antibody-enhanced disease. There's evidence that antibodies are binding to some parts of the spike protein that actually facilitate infection with this virus. So it's not all about the amount of antibodies. It's mm. about the quality of the antibody response.
Dr. Bridal, I always feel like I got a little bit of a medical degree every time you come on. So thank okay, you. Okay, there's joining. the end of the interview. But look, my goal here is I'm not sharing this with you because I want you to rail against vaccines. Know they're the most dangerous thing in the world. I want you to make up your own mind. But I also want you to recognize there are significant questions. People who are vaccine hesitant have good reason to question what's going on. And this is to say nothing about the optics of, hey, can government force you to have something injected into your body, particularly something that even though they said, hey, it's official a couple of days ago, nonetheless is still experimental in the sense that they really don't have a long track record of seeing what the other effects of this vaccine might be. I mean, I, I don't think I'm an unreasonable person. At least in my mind, it's not unreasonable to say, you don't have the authority to tell me that I have to take this shot. But look at how things are lining up. Look at the, the pressure that's being brought to bear. You can't go here. You can't eat. You can't play. You can't recreate. You can't travel. You can't work until you get the shot. Now, you know, you're free to choose, but, you know, you're only free to choose kind of in the same way that when a robber points a gun at you and says your money or your life. Hey, come on, man. You have a choice. At least he gave you a choice. Don't sit there and complain about it. It's not like he didn't give you a choice there. You can always keep your money and let him shoot you. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't like being on the horns of a false dilemma, and I suspect there are a lot of you who don't like that as well. I just want to exercise my personal autonomy. I want good health, as I suspect most every rational person does. I want less disease. But there's just something about trust the science. I mean, is it true? I've heard that the CDC counts people dying within 14 days of getting the vaccine as unvaccinated. I think one of the really tricky things is I saw the chart for this earlier today, and it was just... It just points out the the madness that that is holding steady here. Ultra-vaxxed Israel sees a huge surge in COVID as experts avoid the only logical conclusion. Keep in mind, Israel is one of the most vaccinated nations in the world. 80% of their eligible population is vaccinated. Far beyond what was once considered the threshold of herd immunity level. That's where life should be able to return to normal. And despite their success in getting their population to have the vaccine, Israel is suffering through a huge spike in cases. In fact, yesterday, they had nearly the highest new case total the nation has seen since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, look, I don't don't know what the answer is. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not pretending to be one. But doesn't that raise at least a few questions in your mind? Why would that happen? The experts have given plenty of reasons. Some say, well, Israel opened up and let people take off their masks for a short time. Others say, well, it's normal for there to be occasional spikes following mass vaccinations, ignoring literally every successful vaccine in world history. And then there are those who are trying to move the goalpost, blaming the Delta variant for forcing us to accept that the vaccine is more of a deterrent than actual protection. I mean, I'm not saying, hey, the vaccine clearly isn't working, but I have to say that's not an illogical conclusion looking at what's happening with this highly vaccinated population and the incredible amount of surging cases. Even Israel's coronavirus SAR, Dr. Salman Sarkis said, unfortunately, the numbers don't lie. 
And here's the here's the thing too. I'm going to throw in a personal anecdote. Keeping in mind this is only an anecdote. My daughter who lives in Germany received her second dose of the vaccine yesterday. I don't know exactly what happened to the patient before her who got the vaccine, but my daughter said the nurses who were giving her the vaccine were absolutely rattled, scared, and they were watching my daughter like a hawk because the person before her had some kind of a severe reaction. I don't know what all that reaction entailed, but it scared the nursing staff enough that they were seriously rattled. Oh, and isn't it interesting? Now, keep in mind, this is in Germany, but uh, when my daughter showed up at the uh, medical facility to get the vaccine, one of the first things they made her do was leave your phone out here. I don't know. Maybe that's too conspiratorial. Uh, They don't want people videoing for some reason because maybe there will be something there that they that they uh, don't want us to see. See, you combine stuff like this, and I'm not saying it happens for everybody. I'm just saying that's something that someone I know personally witnessed, you know, with her own eyes. That was her experience. Why do we pretend that, uh, boy, this is something everybody ought to do no matter what the risk? Clearly, there are some risks. Shouldn't people be able to make that decision for themselves? And yet, Dr. Fauci yesterday was making noise about how, well, enough is enough. We've waited long enough, and the 30% of people who said they were waiting for the vaccine to get approved, well, it's approved now. Hop to, get it done, you know, get that vaccine in your body. Look, I, I always hold out the possibility that I could be wrong. But isn't it suspicious when someone is pushing you so intensely to do something that you really don't want to do or that you may have uncertainty about doing? When society is is counseled and conditioned to line up against you and see you as the cause of the problem. I'm not an expert in psychology. I'm not even an expert in just, you know, being a curmudgeon, but somebody pushes me that hard, I can't believe, I can't make myself believe they really have my best interest in at heart. Especially when they are largely unaccountable bureaucrats who are simply, you know, I don't know what they're doing. I, to me, this this smacks of, if you wanted to bring a lot of people under control, this is how you would do it. You scare the crap out of them and make sure that uh, they know that this is mandatory. You've got to do it. And you try to get everybody in, involved. The harder they push, the more resistant I become. And it's not because I want this disease to, to prevail. I think in the 10 points of the good news there about COVID-19, it's pretty clear. We are transitioning from a pandemic to endemic, and the deaths and hospitalizations are down. So why do we have to pretend like this is still the deadliest thing ever to hit the earth? I don't like where it's headed. And it's hard to say this without being a little bit alarmist. I'm not saying, look, they're lining up the cattle cars to truck us away. But then I look at countries like Australia and I think, how far away are they from forcibly relocating people for their own safety? Which is the excuse that other regimes 
that had no compunction about loading people on cattle cars and taking them places to be contained or disposed of. That's the kind of stuff they were saying. This is just for your own safety. We're just relocating you because we need to be sure that you're being kept safe. I think this is one of the biggest tests of a person's commitment to real, authentic liberty. You may have strong feelings about, uh, you know, fear over this illness and fear, fear over this virus. But if that strong fear overcomes your ability to let other people live their lives according to their own conscience and make their own medical decisions without government force, my friend, you are flunking the test. You're on the wrong side of history. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. There was a time when Americans could rely on the Fourth Estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcast, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Hey, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. I hope you're paying close attention to the sponsors of this program as well as the other programs on this network. And know that uh, the business you do with them helps to keep that uh, that voice of truth and keep the the information flowing as it should be. Unless, of course, you're more, you know, interested in what amounts to a pre-digested sound bites that will sound soft in your ears 
and uh, keep you from seeing what the world is really doing. But hey, it's your choice. <laughs> Tongue in cheek. I thought we could talk a little bit about collectivism. And, and the reason I would like to explore this is because we, we hear a lot of labels thrown around today as far as, you know, explaining where's the conflict today. Is it the Democrats versus the Republicans? If you listen to the talking heads in Washington, D.C., absolutely. Everything, the entire worldview can be defined as what is happening via the Republicans versus the Democrats. Now, from here, the tribalism kind of spreads out as you get into broader and broader philosophy. Well, it's the conservatives versus the progressives or the liberals. It's the left versus the right. But the interesting thing is, if you look at every conflict that is going on right now, one of the things that you're going to see is that uh, collectivism versus the individual usually is at the root of those, those conflicts. And there was a time where the rights of the individual were considered sacred. They were, that's the reason government was called into existence in the first place. All right, so here's, here's the basic uh, you know, steps through you know, Civics 101. In the Declaration of Independence, you will see an excellent enunciation of what legitimate government is and why it exists. Thomas Jefferson talked about how we believe that men are endowed. Actually, he said these are self-evident truths, meaning anybody ought to be able to figure this out, that the rights that each man possesses are rights with which he was endowed by his creator. And they are inalienable, meaning they are untransferable. Some prefer the pronunciation unalienable, but either way, they predate and they exist before government. Government, we were told, exists to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, to to secure those natural rights and make sure that they were not being infringed upon. Furthermore, the Declaration of Independence talks about how when a government becomes abusive of those rights or becomes ignorant of its proper role, the people for whom that government exists, for whom it was called into existence, have the absolute right to either alter or abolish that form of government and to, to initiate one or to create one that will protect their rights. I know we don't think about these kind of things as we're lighting sparklers and eating hot dogs and watching parades on July 4th, but that's what sparked America's bid for independence. It was an understanding and and a, a flash of moral clarity that what the king was doing to his subjects was abusive and something that violated their natural or God-given rights. And they submitted the facts to a candid world. They submitted the facts to the supreme judge of the universe and said, we're going to stand up and we're going to claim those rights. And by some miracle, they managed to pull it off. On paper, they shouldn't have. They were going up against the greatest military power on the earth at that time. But they did. Those who have delved into it uh, with, uh, with some depth, looking at the words of the founders themselves, will recognize there was a spiritual aspect and a spiritual dynamic that drove that quest to establish liberty. Which is not just being free, but being free to do what you should do. In other words, free to live your life in accordance with God's highest designs for you. And that's a significant difference 
if only in the sense that it it speaks to an accountability, a stewardship, if you will, that comes along with liberty. People who love and understand liberty, disciples of liberty, if you will, they understand this. Responsibility and stewardship is part of that. If you abuse it, well, it's not going to be there. It's something that you can effectively remove from your life through bad choices. Hedonism will not make you more free. Living as a good person, making choices that are based upon sound principles as opposed to unsound principles, that's what it takes. But what's crazy is there's a lot of collectivism that has nonetheless crept into our lives, keeping in mind that that's where the founders started the journey. We're freeing ourselves from tyrannical government because we believe that God wants us to be free. I agree with that conclusion. To that end, they won their independence. They were recognized as 13 separate little republics. You look at uh, the Treaty of uh, Paris that King George signed. He didn't say to the United States, you know, this conglomeration. He signed that uh, that uh, that armistice or that uh, basically the treaty that ended that war. He signed it and he addressed all 13 of those colonies, now states. Under the Articles of Confederation, they operated for a while, but they found there were areas of common interest where their overlap was not being addressed properly, still some areas of contention, and so they sought to improve that. Let's fix the Articles of Confederation. That's what they set out to do in the summer of 1787. Instead, they chucked the Articles of Confederation, penned the Constitution, and then sent it back to the states, where the states and the people of those states debated whether or not to call into existence a federal government with very clearly defined powers, limited powers, separated powers to oversee those areas of common interest. And each of the states had the choice, do you ratify this or not? The arguments that were made both for or against the Constitution which had been written in Philadelphia, you can find in both the Federalist Papers or in the Anti-Federalist Papers. And I know that name anti-federalist, you know, for a lot of people throws them for a loop. Oh, well, they must be against everything that's good and decent. Well, time has shown that the concerns that the anti-federalists had, that uh, perhaps the Constitution was not written tightly enough to keep mischief at that national level, at the federal level, from taking place, it appears that their fears were very well placed. Now, I say that as someone who loves and treasures the Constitution. Personally, I believe that God raised up wise individuals, not perfect, but wise individuals who were capable of striking off what Blackstone called one of the greatest documents ever made by the hand of man. And I think we've enjoyed unprecedented blessings of liberty since that time, although you've noticed that those blessings have been shrinking correspondingly as we go forward. Actually, as we have, as the we as a people have forgotten the principles and practices on which they're predicated. So, I want to point to to your attention an article by Richard M. Ebling from the Future of Freedom Foundation. Modern collectivist trends and how to resist them, because the beauty of what the founders wrought, the Constitution and its accompanying Bill of Rights, recognized the rights of the individual. Read the Bill of Rights, and you'll notice it prohibits government from screwing around with the rights of the individual, except under extreme circumstances and with due process. 
with strict obedience to the laws. It, it, it was just, these things are off limits. You don't mess around. Congress, you don't establish a law that interferes with the free exercise of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, the ability to gather together peaceably to assemble, to petition government for redress. Off limits. Second Amendment. Congress, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I know the qualifier there, but in the context of a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, that qualifier still doesn't change what the next segment says, which is the right of the people. Not the state, not the militia, not the government. The right of the people. Individual right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And on it goes. But the collective operates on a different set of standards. They operate under the idea that, well, if enough people want this, we should be able to have it. And you don't have to look around very far today to see some really powerful examples of what that kind of collective mindset brings. In fact, if you want to really get down to brass tacks, political correctness or identity politics social justice warriors and critical uh, intersectionality, or what is it, critical race theory, intersectionality, all of this kind of stuff, thrives on collectivism, and particularly ugly forms of collectivism. As in ugly in the sense that we're fighting racism. How are you doing that? By being as racist as we possibly can? That's great. <laughs> that's, but that's all racism is. It's just a really ugly form of collectivism in which we tend to categorize people by skin color or by ethnicity or by what accent or what language they might use, as opposed to looking at them as individuals. And if there has to be a distinction made looking at them as an individual, then I guess they would fall into the category of either being a decent person or an indecent person, not based on some immutable trait like their skin color or their hair or their name, but by their behavior how they conduct themselves. And right now, that that collectivist mindset is taking on a very authoritarian, uh, perhaps even headed for a totalitarian sort of slant as people are using it to clamp down on people and others around them in the name of protecting us in the name of public health. But how did these collectivist trends come in the first place? Well, this is where Richard M. Ebling provides a very, very solid explanation. And interestingly enough, if you want to trace it back to where did it really get a toehold? He says the First World War and Great Depression were major events. In fact, they were the major events that shaped most of the political, social, and economic trends for more than a century. The Great War, as it used to be called, undermined the generally classical liberal world that prevailed at least in much of Western and Central Europe and North America, prior to 1914. Not that the world before that was some pristine reflection of laissez-faire ideals of fully recognized and protected individual liberty, radically free markets, and strictly limited government assigned only to protect people's right to their respective life, liberty, and honestly acquired property. Ebling says, in many instances, very far from it. By the benchmarks of the world before the heyday of classical liberal ideas and policies in the middle of the 19th century, however, he says the Western world practiced a high degree of freedom. 
And he says that period also stands out on the same basis in comparison to the rise of modern collectivism in the decades after the First World War in the 20th century. Now think about what he's describing here. Richard Ebling says, after all, basic civil liberties of freedom of speech and the press, of religion, of peaceful assembly, the legal security of one's person and property were more or less widely accepted as the norm, an ideal on the basis of which any breaches of them were evaluated and criticized. Compared to the mercantilist economic restrictions and controls of the 18th century, much of the civilized world had moved to a recognition of and respect for widely unregulated freedom of free of, of private enterprise rather and international trade. He says political freedom in the sense of expanded voting franchises were also increasingly taken for granted. A free man, it was argued, should have a say in the selection and appointment of those who are to hold positions of political authority for stipulated periods of time in the government. The 19th century classical liberals frequently warned of the uncertainties and dangers from a growing and unrestricted system of political democracy. In fact, Richard Ebling says for this reason, they usually argued for constitutions based on social tradition or in a written form. They would clearly define and delineate what liberties belong to each and every free citizen that even majorities should not have the power to restrain or abolish through the coercive powers of government. By the way, I want to point out one of the best explanations of the U.S. Constitution that I have yet heard is that it represents a contract. Actually, I'm going to use another word. It represents a compact, which is a contract between multiple parties. In this case, what we're talking about are the multiple parties of the various states, which came together with representatives selected by the people of those states to represent them and represent their point of view and to call into existence a federal government which again existed for the which would exist for the purpose of securing those god-given rights so where did it start to go wrong well richard ebling says a world of wide liberty was overturned by the first world war in fact he cites british historian ajp taylor no doubt with a degree of exaggeration explained in his english history Until August 1914, a sensible, law-abiding Englishman could pass through life and hardly notice the existence of the state, beyond the post office and the policeman. He could live where he liked and as he liked. He had no official number or identity card. He could travel abroad or leave his country forever without a passport or any sort of official permission. He could exchange his money for any other currency without restriction or limit. He could buy goods from any country in the world on the same terms as he bought goods at home. For that matter, a foreigner could spend his life in this country without permit and without informing the police. Unlike the countries on the European continent, the state did not require its citizens to perform military service. Substantial householders were occasionally called for jury service. Otherwise, only those helped the state who wished to do so. I just want to let those words sink in for a minute. Can you imagine not have to carry around some kind of government ID? I know there, there are fears, well, if we didn't do that, the terrorists would take us over. I'm not so sure I buy into that. But I would say that uh, there's, there's a danger in letting your identity become a state-granted privilege, which is pretty much where we are today. And we're about to find out exactly how bad an idea that is with the COVID uh, vaccine passports that apparently are about to become a part of our living experience. 
Now, the war that came along in 1914, the Great War, resulted in regimentation and collectivism. Before 1914, a resident of Great Britain could live out his life and pretty much be respected in his right to ignore the state. That's a phrase, by the way, used by Herbert Spencer. That's a, that's a writer you should probably become more familiar with. But all of that changed with the coming of the Great War. A.J.P. Taylor said, The mass of the people became, for the first time, active citizens. Their lives were shaped by orders from above. They were required to serve the state instead of pursuing exclusively their own affairs. Five million men entered the armed forces, many of them, though a minority, under compulsion. The Englishman's food was limited, and its quality changed by government order. His freedom of movement was restricted. His conditions of work prescribed. Some industries were reduced or closed, others artificially fostered. The publication of news was fettered. Street lights were dimmed. The sacred freedom of drinking was tampered with. Licensed hours were cut down and beer watered by order. The very time on the clocks were changed. From 1916 onwards, every Englishman got up an hour earlier in summer than he would have otherwise done, thanks to an act of Parliament. The state established a hold over its citizens, which, though relaxed in peacetime, was never to be removed, and which the Second World War was again to increase. The history of the English state and the English people merged for the first time. Now, Richard Ebling says, look, similar accounts could be given about all the belligerent countries and governments involved in the First World War, including the United States under Woodrow Wilson, after America's entry in the conflict in April 1917. But since Great Britain was considered the model country in the 19th century for advocating and widely implementing many facets of the classical liberal ideal, highlighting how that conflict changed that country helps to bring out the impact of war collectivism on the Western world in general. So that brings us to FDR. This was one of the great uh, movements that brought collectivism into fashion in the U.S., and that was his New Deal. Ebling says the world has not been the same since the experience and politics, or policies rather, of the First World War. But what made the turn toward political, economic, and social collectivism a seemingly permanent trend for the remainder of those last hundred years was the Great Depression and the coming of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. Because America, too, imposed a regimented economy during its short participation in the Great War. With government production, planning, wage and price controls, restrictions on freedom of speech and the press, imprisonment of critics of the war, and increased centralization of power in Washington, D.C. These governmental policies of war planning and central control in 1917 and 1918 became the backdrop to the mindset and policies introduced by FDR starting in 1933 with the implementation of his New Deal. In fact, sociologist and historian Robert Nismet explained this well and clearly in his book, The Present Age, published back in 1988. He said FDR had served Wilson as, a secre- as assistant secretary of the Navy in World War I and had been thrilled by Wilson personally and by certain aspects of the war state. It's interesting to speculate on what form of American response to the Depression of the 1930s would or might have taken had it not been for the legacy of government planning and regimentation left by the First World War. The response made by FDR and his chief aides was simply a revival of structures and relationships which had characterized the Wilson War State. With altered names, many of the same production, labor, banking, and agricultural boards of World War I were simply dusted off, as it were, and with new polish, set once again before the American people. This time the enemy was not Germany, 
or any foreign power, but the Depression. This did not, however, prevent Roosevelt from literally declaring war on it and likening himself and his associates to a trained and loyal army willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline. And so, Ebling explains, American industry was conscripted into government-mandated cartels as part of the National Industrial Recovery Administration, which set prices, wages, and production targets. American farmers were placed under the command of the government through the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. The original AAA, with its power to determine crop sizes, animal herds, and the prices of all that was supplied by the farming community. Grandiose public works projects of road building, dam construction, regional electrical programs like the TVA, and huge budget deficits in central money bank or central bank money creation were used to stimulate economy-wide demand and artificially push up prices, profits, and employments. The welfare state was planted with government-mandated social security and health care programs, along with housing projects, unemployment insurance, Plus, the Roosevelt administration used a host of propaganda campaigns, such as the Blue Eagle, to rally the people to loyally accept and obey this new central planning role of government. Individuals, communities, and states were all submerged within and aggregated into national tasks under government direction. And this aspect of the, to the nature and legacy of the New Deal was also emphasized by Robert Nisbet. He said the New Deal is a great watershed not only in 20th century American history, but in our entire national history. In it, the mesmerizing idea of a national community, an idea that had been in the air since the Progressive Era, had come into full but brief existence in 1917 under the stimulus of war. And it was now at long last to be initiated in peacetime as a measure to combat the evils of capitalism and its economic royalists. Nisbet says FDR once explained the New Deal's drastic changes in the methods and forms of the function of government by noting that we have been extending to our national life the old principle of the old community. Now, without doubt, the idea of national community burns brightly in the American consciousness at the present time. Initiated by President Roosevelt, the idea has been nourished, watered, and tended in one degree or another by each succeeding president. The national state, the centralized, collectivized, and (laughs) bureaucratized national state. What do you think? That's pretty significant, wouldn't you say? Richard Ebling says, you know, the significance of this transformation was understood by at least some people at that time. It was utterly unprecedented in American history. But the voices who raised questions and criticisms, especially following the further concentration of federal control and planning after FDR took office in 1933, you know, they they weren't the ones that prevailed, and the winners write the history books. Nonetheless, says Richard Ebling, most Americans and almost all the policy and press press media pundits either acquiesced or they strongly endorsed the president's near-dictatorial hand with the fascist-like economic planning institutions of the early New Deal. Now, there were also matters like acceptance of presidential discretion in going to war, rules for presidential war-making that limit American deaths. And then he shifts his focus to COVID-19 and Big Brother and how that equals tyranny. In response to the feared number of possible cases and deaths from the coronavirus that were bandied about in the beginning months of 2020, Governments around the world, including that of the United States, and, this, and most especially the state governments through most parts of the United States, instituted draconian measures. 
the American people were commanded and ordered to stop almost everything they were doing. Don't produce anything but what the political authorities declare to be essential items. Don't go to work, except in those industries considered essential by politicians and their experts. Stay at home and only go outside for essential shopping for food or medical supplies. Shut down your non-essential retail business of practically every type. Wear that mask and stay six feet away from others. Eberling says many essential and non-essential goods, not surprisingly, disappeared from retail stores, with panic buying setting in. Governments instituted or threatened price controls to prevent price gouging at a time of national crisis, which of course only exacerbated the short supplies and desperate search for everyday items by consumers. Output fell, unemployment rose, people's incomes dramatically went down or went to zero. The first truly American government-made and mandated economic collapse impacted the entire country. As like during the Great Depression, most Americans silently passively and obediently followed what the government told them to do. The increasing pockets of resistance or opposition to these near-totalitarian policies are viewed by those in political power and most of the media as kooks, an ideological extremist not willing to follow the science. But the danger is now that the precedent has been made. Every future declared health crisis can become a new reason and new rationale to impose lockdowns and shutdowns, to order everyone to wear a mask and stay X number of feet away from those around you, to command people to stop working and stay at home and justify dictating where, what, and when private enterprises may produce and sell and at what prices. By the way, I would add to that another concern, and that is churches were shut down. And this may seem like a fairly small thing, but um, for a person whose life is centered around their faith in God and the exercise of that faith, That's a big deal. That is an essential part of who a person is. And when government can step in and say, well, because of this and that emergency, you can't meet together for church, and they actively would ticket people for showing up to church or try to stop them from showing up to church. I mean, there's a Rubicon that's being crossed there. And the precedent that's established is not a good one. So what's to be done? All right, here's what Richard Eberling suggests. He says, for Friends of Freedom, I suggest the following. First, know some of the history, how and why Leviathan appeared and grew to such a monstrous size in comparison to before the First World War. He says it's important to be able to explain to and assure people that there is another way other than political paternalism and planning. And however imperfectly it existed before World War I and brought great prosperity and well-being to hundreds of millions of people. Second, he says, uncompromisingly and in a clear and articulate manner, learn to make the case for individual liberty and rights, and for why the new tribal political paternalism of identity politics and cancel culture are inconsistent with and a danger to the free society. Third, he says, do not let those in favor of these various forms of political, economic, and social collectivism set the terms of the debate. Politely and courteously, but firmly, insist that America does not suffer from systemic racism and has historically kept moving in a direction of greater respect and rights for each and every individual. If this march toward liberty has been impeded or sidetracked, well, that's due to the very policies and presumptions of the collectivists in our midst. And fourth, he says, do not become despondent or despairing in the face of seemingly irreversible increases in political paternalism and planning. 
Richard Ebling says the collectivists want it to seem as if they are on the right side of history, when in fact theirs is an ideological and political journey backwards to a tribalism and tyranny of centuries gone by. Freedom can win, but it requires dedication, determination, and a willingness to fight the good fight, even when the trend seems against liberty. And it all starts with each of us as thinking individuals devoted to freedom. Ebling says the 21st century can showcase a better and more consistent classical liberalism, one that shows how human beings can be free, prosperous, and peaceful. But he says it falls on each of us to do our part. Now maybe I'm supposing more than I should here, but I'm guessing the fact that you are listening to a program such as the Disciples of Liberty indicates that you are one of those people who is honestly and earnestly seeking how to do your part. And for that, I congratulate you. I've suggested it before, and I'll suggest it one more time. If you're serious about doing your part, that's the kind of question you ought to take to your maker and ask humbly in prayer what you could be doing. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.